Good morning, Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. This is Dave McGuire with another Sunday School lesson on July the 19th of 2020. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Lord, we are so deeply appreciative of your word. We are so deeply appreciative to be the ambassadors that you've set forth to talk to folks who don't know you. We pray that we would do that winsomely, that we would do that with graciousness and with kindness, and we pray that you would send your spirit upon us to know the hearts of the people that we are talking to and know our own hearts so that we can uh, speak genuinely and openly with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To quote William Shatner, irony can be very ironic sometimes. The first surviving manuscript of Caesar's The Gallic Wars was copied over 800 years after Caesar died. The oldest copy of Homer's The Iliad is 1700 years post-Homer. There are only seven copies of Plato's Republic. To contrast, there are 5,600 copies of the books of the New Testament. 5,600 copies from different sources in different areas, 138,000 plus words. 94% of 5,600 copies match word for word. Of the variants, most are spelling errors, missing punctuation, or margin notes. Some copies are within mere years after the writing of the original manuscript. The irony I refer to above is that no one ever questions whether Caesar existed. We look to Homer to get a better idea of life in antiquity and a better idea of the minds and thoughts of uh, the people who lived back then. Plato informs our college students to this day. People still read the allegory of the cave and study it in philosophy class, even though there are only seven copies of the Republic that, uh, that exist from antiquity. The reliability of the New Testament and its ability to withstand intense scrutiny is astounding. No other book from the ancient world can claim it. So in order to maintain the belief that the Bible is, quote-unquote, full of errors or inconsistencies, one of two things, and probably both, must be true. One, a keen historical ignorance, and two, a deeply held desire that the Bible is unreliable. What we're going to discuss today are those deeply held beliefs in an unbeliever, strongholds of faith that keep them from knowing the true God. With an indirect method of apologetics, which naturally arises from a presuppositional, <laughs> me, presuppositional approach, a Christian asks questions of an unbeliever to gain insight uh, into what she believes, to help her understand the inconsistencies in her worldview and thereby begin to undermine and challenge the authority on which she bases those beliefs. Paul says it very well in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I think it's important to remember that these are not mere intellectual ascents when somebody holds the, these viewpoints um, uh, that are inconsistent and illogical and irrational. 
the human creature was made to worship. And what we're doing when we're undermining somebody's worldview is at its essence attacking the thing that they worship. So it must be done then with the uttermost care and respect. Beginning to have your weaknesses and inconsistencies um, shown can be unnerving. So we must be warm and, and winsome uh, and let them do a good bit of the talking initially. This is accomplished with questions. The role of the question is, is multifaceted. Questions encourage conversation. And we do seek genuine conversation with the unbeliever. Taking an interest in someone and, and learning more deeply who they are is likely to take a philosophical or spiritual turn fairly quickly. People will very often begin with statements um, like, uh, well, well, I believe X or Y. These are extremely beneficial insights into how they see the world. Listen then for the basis on which their claims are made. Are they reliant on human wisdom? It's a finite, limited perspective. Are they reliant on uh, science? Science is a methodology. It can make observations about the universe, but it can't tell us anything about morality or the nature of existence. Why are we here and what are we supposed to do? Christianity has power by virtue of being true. Christians have confidence in this. We are not always going to be able to identify the weaknesses in others' arguments at first glance. We can be sure that they are there, though. Take karma. If one believes that good things happen to those who do good and bad things happen to those who do bad, but at the same time affirms that the universe is a cold, purposeless, and um, empty place governed by nothing but random chance and chaos, those two positions are self-contradictory. But how then do we get them to see the contradiction? By yelling, your worldview makes no sense. No, that would be off-putting, and we don't want to be off-putting. Rather, we turn to conversation, which, as we discussed above, is driven by questions. Genuine engagement, open dialogue, and a certain amount of vulnerability are the foundations to a relationship which will lead to our ability to present the gospel. The gospel itself is offensive enough. We shouldn't then engage in sinful offense by expressing superiority or by verbal body slams. I see enough of that online. I'm also guilty of using words as a bludgeon to win an argument. I've done this before, but it's unlikely to leave someone open to hearing the truth of your words or my words. It's just going to raise defenses and kill the fledgling relationship that we're attempting to build here. Once you make it to what the non-Christian believes, you can begin to ask her the reasons on which she bases these beliefs. Um, Farnham in the book, Every Believer Confident, um, provide some helpful follow-up questions. You know, why do you believe that? What do you base that on? What makes you think that? How do you know that? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by X? Can you give me an example of that? What led you to believe that? These questions cause someone to really think about the grounds for her beliefs. Many folks have never really thought too deeply about why they believe what they believe. In my experience, a lot of times that has to do with the fact that what they believe doesn't really affect how they live their daily lives. When they begin then to examine the authority in which they place their trust, it oftentimes doesn't go very well for them. The unbeliever then comes to conclusions about their own worldview when we begin to ask them questions about it. Like We don't 
tell them, hey, your worldview is wrong. We lead them in questioning that then helps them to see it for themselves. They come to those conclusions on their own. Just having somebody tell you you're wrong puts you on the defense. Answering questions is about self-discovery. The more one engages in true self-discovery, the more our sin and inability to reconcile ourselves to the people we've hurt and ultimately to the God of the Bible becomes clearer and clearer. Um, Oz Guinness, who's a Christian author, puts it this way. Questions are always more subversive than statements. For one thing, they're indirect. Whereas it should be crystal clear what a statement is saying and where it is leading, a good question is not so obvious and where it leads to is hidden. For another thing, questions are involving. Whereas a statement always has a take it or leave it quality, and we may or may not be interested in what it tells us, there's no standing back from a well-asked question. It invites us, challenges us, or intrigues us to get, and, uh, to get, it into, get into it and to follow it to see where it leads. In short, even a simple question can be a soft form of subversion. So ask clarifying questions. When you talk to somebody about, you know, why do you believe what you believe? Seek to understand what, a, what she or he means by those terms. I, I remember once talking to a friend who affirmed that all truth is simply observed. She had a very em empirical way of looking at the world. So I asked her, hey, let's say dinosaurs are roaming the earth. I'll grant that no humans have uh, you know, evolved yet. And she agreed to the terms. And I continued, hey, two coconuts fall from a tree, then two, two more. How many coconuts have fallen from the tree? And she answered, well, four, of course. And so I followed up, even though no one was around to see them. And she thought about it for a moment, and then she said, oh, I see what you're doing, but numbers are different. But she understood by then the contradiction in her own viewpoint, but had come to the conclusion on her own. Restating the position can be intensely helpful when attempting to understand a worldview. When restating a position of the unbeliever, make sure to use simple terms, but don't exaggerate or use sarcasm truly represent what you believe them to be saying. Once they've affirmed that you understand their position, then you can go ahead and take that position to help them see the irrationality in it. For example, let's go back to karma again. I can hear you uh, through the internet, Dave, why do you talk about karma so much? Because it's a really common belief and it's wormed its way into the church. How often have you heard Christians say something like, I hope that person gets what he deserves? That's a karmic statement. Because the common core of the Christian worldview is that we absolutely do not want what we deserve, nor do we wish that upon somebody else. I was discussing karma with a friend. Okay, so you believe that because you've done some bad things, the universe is punishing you. And he answered, yes. But previously you said that morality is subjective. Yes, he said. Positing that the universe rewards good and punishes bad presupposes that the universe knows right from wrong. Positing that the universe knows right from wrong presupposes that there is a universal moral law. And positing a universal moral law presupposes a moral law giver. Positing that morality is subjective is directly contradictory to all of those other presuppositions. Now, that's a, um, an objection that I can answer or a, a <clears throat> uh, an issue that I can point out. But 
Let's say then that there's an objection that I can't answer. When this happens, you know, I, I don't try to bluff my way out of it. Uh, people can immediately begin to sense a uh, disingenuous statement. Uh, we're, we're supposed to be different. Christians are supposed to be different. Humility means being able to say that, hey, I, I don't know. Uh, but there's a couple of advantages to this as well. When you hear a, a statement or an objection that you can't answer, um, you know, and you say that you don't know, it makes you human. Uh, you know, you know, I know that we don't have all of the answers, so why try to pretend? Second, uh, it gives you a chance to follow up. Uh, tell the person you're chatting with that you'll look into it and get back to them and ask them if you can, you know, hey, uh, let's, let's go ahead and hang out again soon and, and chat about you know, the answer that I I'm, I'm, have come up with for whatever objection you might have. Throughout these conversations, I would advise to pepper in the alternative. If you're asking someone how much work she believes it will take to make up for all the wrong things she's ever done, provide some hope in saying that the Jesus of the Bible offers that the work has already been done. Slowly building in facts about Christianity will directly contrast the irrationality on display in the unbeliever's worldview. Logic and beauty are present throughout all of the gospel. Second Corinthians, again, uh, in chapter 4, tells us, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These are the things that people really seek after. Light, knowledge, and glory. Why else pursue philosophy or science or build relationships with others? Paul says in the passage above that this shines in our hearts and is ours to give. How can we do that if we have a shallow understanding of our own faith? How can we do that if we can't defend our own faith? Now, as we said above, no Christian is going to have every answer for every possible objection to what she knows to be true. But that doesn't remove the obligation to study and to read and to sit under sound biblical teaching. Never going to feel ready. Uh, have confidence in the truth of the gospel and go have conversations. Strike up relationships with unbelievers. Ask them questions and seek to genuinely know them. You'll find in time that the Spirit is going to lead people to you. They're going to notice something different about the way you care, the way you listen, and the way you live. Finally, don't put the pressure of conversion on them or on you. The Spirit's change of heart is a true miracle and can't be forced. But I'll tell you this for free, anyone can do apologetics.